Hi everyone and welcome to Dark as Hell. I'm your host, Maggie. Let's pick up right where we left off. The discovery of Elisa Lamb's body found floating in a massive water tank on top of the Cecil Hotel after having disappeared almost three weeks beforehand. The thing about Elisa's death, though, is that the answers so many people were seeking wouldn't necessarily be found. What they would find, however, are a lot of questions. Some questions that are still unanswered to this day. Let's get ready to get dark as hell. Let's have a quick recap of the facts as they stood on February 19th, 2013. Eliza had last been seen on January 31st inside the Cecil Hotel, though later video surveillance from inside an elevator showed that she had still been at the hotel on February 1st, despite the fact that she was supposed to have checked out on the 31st to continue her West Coast tour up through California. Her stay at the Cecil had been largely uneventful, though she had been moved to a private room after two other guests that she had originally been sharing a hostel room with had complained about, quote, odd behavior that she'd been exhibiting. Though the odd behavior that her former roommates had witnessed has never been fully explained, one has to wonder if it was similar to the strange way that she was seen acting on the elevator video. And we'll be diving more into that in a bit. Don't worry. So it was, though, on February 19th, 2013, that Elisa was found by Santiago Lopez, a maintenance worker at the Cecil who had been sent to investigate the cause for the low water pressure and occasionally black, foul-smelling and tasting water that guests had complained about for some days now. The call to 911 was placed at 1022 that morning, and the LAPD's homicide division was alerted of the strangeness at the Cecil at 1249. Officers arrived at the hotel by 1.48 p.m., and they were greeted by the L.A. Fire Department, who were heading up the endeavor of figuring out just how to retrieve Elisa's body from the tank. It took the LAFD hours to recover her body. In the end, the fire department ended up having to drill a hole into the side of the cistern and drain the entire tank of the 500 to 75. 750 gallons out of the thousand it held at the time because the equipment that they otherwise would have needed was too large to get up the ladder and into the maintenance hatch at the top. Which brings us to the issue of the hatch itself. The lids on top of the water tanks are decently heavy. As noted in a 2015 deposition, quote, the tanks are fully covered by heavy metal lids that are approximately 18 inches by 18 inches and they would have been anywhere from around 20 pounds to 60 pounds. Lopez, the maintenance worker who originally found Elisa, testified that the hinged hatch was open when he ascended to the top of the water tank on February 19th. There has been a lot of miscommunication and just straight-up misreporting when it comes to this particular detail of the case, but throughout the years, some have claimed that the police and otherwise members of the press said that the hatch was closed, The reason this detail is so crucial 
is due to the fact that it raises some other hashtag fucking questions specifically about the investigation that took place before Elisa was even found. Recall, if you will, that Elisa's parents reported her missing to the LAPD almost as soon as they realized something was wrong, and the report was officially filed on February 4th. Starting on February 5th, over the course of multiple days, the LAPD started searching for Elisa. What's interesting here is how this search is described in the 2015 deposition. Some choice quotes for you. An extensive and exhaustive search of the entire hotel, including the roof, was performed. Quote, the team searched every nook and cranny of the hotel, including the roof. Quote, the LAPD teams did not approach or inspect the water tanks during their searches. And another quote, after the LAPD detectives found nothing during their search, a second search of the entire hotel, including the roof, was conducted by numerous canine units. And final quote, Elisa was not found during the LAPD search. If you'll recall from part one of Elisa's story, this retelling of the searches is directly contradictory to what the LAPD told the press. Sergeant Rudy Lopez contemporaneously told the Los Angeles Times that they actually couldn't conduct as quote, extensive and exhaustive a search as they'd like because they didn't have probable cause. To quote Sergeant Lopez directly, we didn't search every room. We could only do that if we had probable cause to believe a crime had been committed. We know that the LAPD didn't have the legal right to conduct this every nook and cranny, extensive and exhaustive search. They admitted at the time that they didn't really go from room to room, and instead they kept things to the key common areas of where guests might be. The only place that they did have the right to access was Elisa's room, and it's actually unsure if they even searched the room that she'd been staying in with the two other people before they asked to have her moved. Put plainly, they couldn't search every nook and cranny of the hotel, so they didn't. Which now begs the question, who is lying about the nature of searches, and why lie about them? Many people are quick to point out one particular aspect that further confounds the conundrum surrounding the was it opened or was it closed question when it comes to the hatch on the water tanks. The canine unit. The canine unit was brought in just a few days after Elisa went missing, and yet they didn't get a single hit of her scent, even when they were brought to the rooftop. Some wonder, if the tank hatch was open, would the dogs have been able to get a hit and thus discover Elisa? If it was closed, it might make sense as to why a hit was never made. However, there's a lot to be said about the statements made over the years, the confusing and the contradictory, the vagueness with which certain details are glossed over. But I believe Santiago Lopez. I think the hatch was open. Of course, that begs other questions, though. Because if the hatch was open, why then didn't Elisa close it? Was it impossible for her to close? What's the length of the drop between the opening of the hatch and where one might expect to hit the water? Because that makes me wonder, if we could know that figure, would Elisa even have been able to reach up and actually close the hatch? 
And I mean, even if it wasn't a big drop, if she's treading water, that's a difficult task to accomplish. Also, it's in fairness to the canine unit that I think it's important to point out that they didn't even have a chance to get a hit of Elisa at the water tank. It's been reported that, for all intents and purposes, investigators didn't even search over by the tanks, which means the dogs didn't search by the tanks either. It's an oversight, a grossly waved-off misstep, which might be part of the explanation about the effort to present an overarching investigation that was way more detailed than it really was. Because, to be quite frank, the investigator's decision to do a cursory search as opposed to the extensive and exhaustive one that they claim they did, well, the strange mishandlings are only just getting started. When Elise's body was discovered, it was not a pretty sight to be frank. Consider this your trigger warning because this is about to get a little gory. Elisa had been presumably submerged in water for just about three weeks by the time that she was found, so decomposition was already advanced by February 19th. She was naked when she was found, so the bloating and, quote, greening of the body were visible to everyone on the scene. What's strange about her being naked, though, was that her clothes were found with her in the tank, as were her room key and her watch. But some of the clothes have been speculated to actually not belong to Elisa, and the seat that they were found in was odd, to say the least. From the autopsy report, the coroner listed that these items were found with Elisa. Black men's shorts, sized medium, with a logo on the left front leg, green shirt labeled JJM, size large, logo on the back of the neck reads Alexander Keith's India Pale Ale, logo on the left front chest, a deer with antlers. Black underwear, Calvin Klein's, sized small. Pair of black polka dot sandals and one red hooded zip-up sweatshirt, sized extra small, labeled American Apparel. I know the industry of sizing for women's clothing is just completely fucking bonkers, but that's a lot of size discrepancy between the items. Though, it should be said, the red zip-up hoodie and the sandals definitely make an appearance during the elevator video since Elisa was wearing them. However, given the low quality of the video's resolution, it's hard to make out what exactly she has on under the sweatshirt. And her shorts are dark, but it's difficult to say with certainty that her shorts are the black men's shorts found with her body. What is also odd was the fact that the clothes are covered with, quote, sand-like particulate, and it's a material that has never been identified. If it had come from the roof, one hopes that the investigators would have included that in the report. But as we're about to see, there is a lot left out and left to interpretation within the autopsy and the various other reports that were made about Elisa's death. The initial autopsy report was vague as hell, to the point that people have speculated over the years that it also seems to have been made purposely ambiguous, specifically when it comes to the details regarding any presence of trauma. The party line from the LAPD when it comes to Elisa's death is that there was no trauma. 
However, when reviewing the autopsy report itself, there's a clear distinction between that party line and what's written in the report because it only suggests that there may not have been trauma. Internally, things were fairly nondescript. Most organs were actually simply labeled as being unremarkable. Even, I'd like to note, her lungs. From an external view, it, like I said, wasn't a pretty sight. The investigator's narrative stated that Elisa, quote, had mold spots on legs and buttocks, and that there was a visible, quote, marbling of the skin, green discoloration, bloating, a foul smell, and skin separation. Skin separation, otherwise known as skin slippage. The greening of the body, oddly enough, was present everywhere except her lower legs and feet, and it was noted that, quote, liver mortis was not appreciated, which my non-medical degree-holding self interpreted as a note of just how Elisa was found, floating in the water, suspended, and thus without the chance for lividity to really settle in. But there was blood pooling elsewhere. As noted in the report, quote, anus is edematous and shows pooling of the blood in the subcutaneous tissues surrounding the orifice. In layman's terms, there was blood pooled in and around Elisa's anus, inexplicably so. Even curiouser is that on the February 27th criminalist report for the case, written by a Mark Shushart, quote, several dark hairs and fibers were noted on the garments, and quote, hair, fingernail, pubic hair, and sexual assault kits were all collected to test for evidence of assault, attack, anything. That document was written, like I said, on February 27th. It wasn't signed, though, until March 22nd. And the results of any of those tests have never been released. Some have questioned if the kits were ever processed or even administered because no evidence of them having been taken exists. Another thing that wasn't fully processed, the blood tests that were performed. The toxicology report done for Elisa couldn't be entirely completed because for whatever reason, there wasn't even enough blood for them to sample. Straight up from the report, it says, quote, quantitation in the blood was not performed due to limited sample availability. Why wasn't more blood available? It's not like she bled out or something. I, I don't know. I find this to be one of the most curious details from the report because, again, I don't have a medical degree. Maybe someone who does would like to illuminate us all on this weirdness and an explanation for it. But I just find it really odd that they couldn't complete the full talks report due to an alleged lack of blood. And being in the water for that amount of time should not have done anything to contaminate the blood. But... Even though there was a limited supply of blood, which even led the ME to admit that their final interpretation was limited, they did have these calls to make. One, there were no illicit drugs in Elisa's system. No cocaine, no weed, no MDMA, no nothing. There was about 0.2% of alcohol in her system, but not nearly enough to indicate that she'd been intoxicated in any way because this amount is actually considered fairly normal to be found in bile. There were, though, 
other drugs in her system, prescription drugs, medication that she used to manage her bipolar disorder and to keep her mental health on track. But the thing was, they didn't appear at all like anyone had expected them to. Let's look at what Elisa's prescription regimen was and what appeared in her toxicology report. This breakdown of information was compiled by a brilliant Reddit user by the name of Hammy underscore Sammy, so credit where credit is due because this was really enlightening. From what Elisa's family told the medical examiner, this is what she was prescribed to treat her mental illness. Dexedrine, which is a stimulant prescribed for ADD slash ADHD and narcolepsy. She was prescribed just two 10 milligram capsules. Lamictal, which is an anticonvulsant and mood stabilizer prescribed for epilepsy and bipolar disorder. This was prescribed in 100 milligrams. Seroquel, which is an atypical antipsychotic prescribed for schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, and major depressive disorder. This, Elisa was prescribed in 25 milligrams. Effexor, an SNRI antidepressant prescribed for major depressive disorder, generalized anxiety disorder, panic disorder, and social phobia. She was prescribed the Effexor in 225 milligrams. And finally, Welbutrin, which is an atypical antidepressant prescribed for depression and smoking cessation. This was prescribed in 300 milligrams. Now, this is a pretty standard course of treatment for bipolar disorder in the eyes of the American Psychiatric Association. There was at least one antidepressant that worked alongside one mood stabilizer and one antipsychotic. One plus one plus one equals the recommendations given by the APA. Along with the prescriptions, the Lambs also told the ME that Elisa might have had ibuprofen and a decongestant in her system since she had a bit of a cold, and both of those things were found slightly. Now, however, Effexor, one of Elisa's antidepressants, was present in the blood in her heart and in her liver enzymes. So, knowing this, it suggests that Elisa took this medication that the day she died. Wilbutrin, Elisa's other antidepressant, in the form of its metabolites, was present in the blood in her heart and in her liver enzymes. This suggests that Elisa took this medication recently, but not the day that she died, as only the metabolites were detected. Seroquel, Elisa's antipsychotic medication, and its metabolites were not detected in any quantity in the blood from Elisa's heart. This suggests that Elisa had not taken this medication recently. And Lamictal, one of the mood stabilizers, was found in such small quantities in the blood from Elisa's heart that it's debatable that it was even there. According to the talks report, quote, quantity not sufficient. However, the Lamictal was found in trace amounts in her liver enzymes. So this suggests that Elisa took this medication recently, but not on the day that she died. When conducting the toxicology screen, the ME determined that there were, quote, no barbiturates, opiates, and amphetamines in her system as they all came up undetected. That class of drugs actually included Elisa's dexedrine prescription, which is technically a stimulant. Because there wasn't even a hint of it being in her system, we can assume from this that Elisa hadn't taken her dexedrine script in quite some time. In Redditor Hammy Sammy's own words, quote, to summarize, Elisa took at least one antidepressant the day that she died, 
She had taken her second antidepressant and mood stabilizer recently, but not that day. She had not taken her antipsychotic recently, and she had no alcohol or common illegal drugs in her system. All of this information, well, we wouldn't actually know it right away because the medical examiner wouldn't release the full autopsy report for months, not until mid-June. All that had been released up until that point was the press release that the LA coroner's office gave on February 21st, just two days after Elisa was found. They simply claimed that she had drowned. And then we waited. On June 19th, the associate and senior medical examiners released their findings. Let me read you their opinion in full. Quote, The decedent died as a result of drowning. A complete autopsy examination showed no evidence of trauma and a toxicology studies did not show acute drug or alcohol intoxication. Decedent had a history of bipolar disorder for which she was prescribed medication. Toxicology studies were performed for the presence of these drugs. However, quantitation in the blood was not performed due to limited sample availability. Therefore, interpretation is limited. Police investigation did not show evidence of foul play. A full review of the circumstances of the case and appropriate consultation do not support intent to harm oneself. The manner of death is classified as an accident. I have some problems with the way that this opinion is laid out. This document was published on June 19th, but what's interesting is the medical report adjacent to the autopsy report that was released as well. Because on June 15th, within the medical report that was filled out by a detective, Tenel, the immediate cause of death was written as, quote, drowning rapid, bipolar disorder as significant factor. And the manner of death on June 15th was labeled accident. On June 18th, though, it was relabeled undetermined. And at some point, that undetermined was changed yet again. It was scribbled out, crossed over, and the word error was written underneath it. Why in the world would someone need to relabel the manner of death? How do you go from accidental drowning to undetermined manner of death, and then back to accidental drowning, especially after this drowning has already been posited to the public. And furthermore, the MEs themselves admit that their interpretation was limited. So it's interesting that they're trying to play hard and fast with claims that there were no signs of trauma when evidence seems to suggest that there may have been trauma due to the anal bleeding that was pooling. Given the extent to which Elisa was submerged in water, though, we lose a lot of evidence, both in the sense of clues about what led her to being in the tank and also in the sense of physically understanding the manner in which she died. Drowning is notoriously difficult manner to prove outside of the accidental realm, and proving it was an accident is just as difficult as proving that someone else played a role in a drowning death. What makes Elisa's case all the more confounding, though, is when you consider how, quote, normal and, quote, unremarkable the internal findings of her autopsy were. 
There was no evidence of a larynx spasm or hemorrhaging within the lungs to note. But there also wasn't even a note of whether or not there was water in her lungs when she was found. So was she dead when she hit the water? Or did she die within the cistern itself? Despite the murkiness of the autopsy and the ambiguity that we're left to entertain, I do think that it's clear Elisa did drown. But the real question is, what led her to the water tank in the first place? The thing that makes Elisa's case feel so particularly frustrating is, in part, due to the elephant in the room. Her bipolar disorder. The crossroads between mental health and instances of crime is a well-worn path, and there's often significant overlap between the two once you look beneath the surface. It's pretty clear that once Elisa's diagnosis was made public, to the police, to the world at large, there was a sense of, oh. And that feeling is somewhat understandable, But it's also incredibly unfair, because it seems clear to me that Elisa's bipolar disorder was made to be a catch-all of sorts, a tidy little answer that could be whipped out of a back pocket to explain away the number of inexplicable instances that made up Elisa's baffling last few movements. Mental illness is difficult to talk about, partly because It is so nuanced and so distinctly unique across the spectrum in which it presents itself and manifests in noticeable behaviors and patterns. Coupled with the knowledge from her toxicology reports that she hadn't been taking her medications as prescribed and seemed to be foregoing certain ones altogether, it was clear that Elisa's bipolar disorder was going to be just such a caveat as it was labeled on her autopsy and medical report that her bipolar was a, quote, contributing factor in her death. It made the perfect catch-all explainer. But it didn't explain nearly enough. Though the LAPD were fairly quick to close the case after her body had been found, there have been a number of lingering questions over the years that have never been answered, that the blanket of bipolar can't drape itself over to hide away. One such question, how the fuck did Elisa even get to the rooftop in the first place? As we already discussed, the most direct way to get to the rooftop was through an alarmed and locked door that led from the 14th floor up to the roof. If ever the door was opened, a screeching alarm was supposed to sound that could be heard throughout the 14th and 15th floors, and it would trigger an alarm down at the reception desk on the first floor. Maintenance workers were said to be the only ones with access to the one key that could deactivate the alarm. According to the 2015 deposition, it was allegedly the Cecil's policy that, quote, any time the rooftop access door is activated, an employee or security guard is immediately dispatched to manually check the roof area and the roof access door. According to the same deposition, though, the alarm on the rooftop door wasn't activated throughout January or February of 2013. So, unless the CISO was lying about how trigger-sensitive the alarm was, we're led to believe Elisa never went through that rooftop door. So how else could she have made her way to the rooftop? Well, 
According to one theory, the fire escapes. A Chinese YouTuber by the name of Kei Tang decided to explore the other possibilities just one month after Elisa was found, and he arrived at the Cecil in March 2013, video camera in hand. What Tang discovered was unsettling, to say the least. Winding his way throughout the hotel, all the while recording, Feng showed how easily anyone could have entered the Cecil entirely, thanks to the open public restrooms. In the video, according to a rough translation, he says, quote, Now I turn into the main hallway that linked the three branch buildings. The elevator is right on the way. The right hand by me are public rooms such as bathrooms or toilets. That means everyone can get in or out. I have to imagine when Feng mentions the three branch buildings, he must be talking about how the hotel had been divided into hotel rooms and the hostel rooms. So that's what I'm taking from that bit of translation. Then, in the rest of the video, it's discovered how easily accessible not just the hotel is, but so too are the fire escapes themselves, which crawl up the length of the building and can bring someone right to the rooftop, all while bypassing the alarm door. And it should be noted, there's not just one fire escape, there's three. Thang himself makes it all the way to the roof, scaling the ladders all the way up to the water tanks themselves, all without setting off any alarms or catching the notice of any surveillance cameras, despite the Cecil's claim that they had upped their security measures in light of Elisa's death. While Feng's video was illuminating, it didn't necessarily answer the question of how or why or even if that this was the way Elisa got to the roof. It merely showcased that, yeah, Cecil management, this was entirely possible. The Lamb family, for their part, believed that these possibilities all fell under the Cecil's fault and were, thus, their own liability. In September of 2013, Elisa's parents filed a wrongful death lawsuit against the Cecil for the cost of their daughter's funeral and other unspecified damages. In their suit, they claimed, quote, the hotel failed to inspect and seek out hazards in the hotel that presented an unreasonable risk of danger to Elisa and other hotel guests. Now, I took some law courses during my college days, and the concept of liability and being found negligent is such that you have got to imagine the worst case scenarios at all fucking times, basically. So the Lambs made a good argument that the Cecil had failed in their duty to their guests by not seeking out potential hazards. In the words of their lawyer, Thomas Johnston, quote, an accident was waiting to happen with the way the Cecil attended to their fire escapes, which is why the Cecil, quote, should have secured that water tank. The Cecil, however, made a better argument against them, unfortunately. They argue that the hotel, quote, could not have reasonably foreseen that Elisa might have entered the water tanks and that since it remained unknown how Elisa got to the water tank, no liability could be assigned for failing to prevent that. Los Angeles Superior Court Judge Howard Holm agreed with the Cecil. In the judgment that he handed down in December 2015, he wrote, quote, Elisa Lamb's death was unforeseeable because it occurred in an area of the former Cecil Hotel. Side note, it had since rebranded to stay on Main at this point. 
quote, where guests were not allowed. In fact, the very nature of the water tank would make it unreasonable for Elisa to assume that she was allowed to climb it and open the lid. And with that, the suit was dismissed, and the Cecil remained free from charges, though they weren't unsullied entirely. Because where there's a mystery, and especially one as unsettling and as public as Elisa's, there will always remain questions. From questions are born theories, which is mainly what we're left with to explore and extrapolate in order to find some sort of reason to understand just what happened on that February 9th. And that, my friends, is what I want to discuss now. The various theories about what could have happened to Elisa Lamb. And spoiler alert, we're talking about the fucking elevator game. With Elisa's case, sometimes it feels like we really are only left with theories, both fantastical and logical, to consider when asking the question of just what exactly happened to her during her time in LA. For some, it seems most feasible of theories that she was having some sort of episode related to her bipolar disorder, or otherwise a mental health crisis of sorts. We know that she had been acting oddly enough in the days leading up to her disappearance and death that it caught the attention of others, and her toxicology report revealed that she hadn't been taking her medications to manage her bipolar as prescribed. With the video from the elevator that showcased her unsettling movements and strange actions, it seemed that all signs pointed to Elisa being in the grips of some sort of mental health episode that rendered her not fully in control of her faculties. But then, what inspired her to go to the rooftop? How would she clamber all the way up the fire escape, up the tank's ladder, remove the lid, and jump? How would she even know that she could access the fire escape? Or even more so, that she shouldn't access the rooftop door because of the alarm system? Some theorize that, Perhaps, in a fit of panic, Elisa ran. Ran from someone following her, someone stalking her, someone who had an intent to hurt her. If someone had taken an unwelcome interest in her, like the men that she mentioned on her Tumblr, maybe that could explain away her strange behavior on the elevator. It could explain the possible panic that drove her up through an otherwise overlooked means of escape. A fire escape. And a ladder in a completely unexpected hiding place like the water tank. And the completely unexpected hiding spot unexpectedly overwhelmed her. Or maybe she never made it to the tank herself and instead was caught by some assailant. And instead of seeking refuge in the water tank, her unknown murderer used it to their own advantage instead. Some think that there is a connection between the fact that there was an outbreak of tuberculosis, of all things, on Skid Row, and there's the connection between that and Elisa herself. Because when that outbreak occurred, the test to identify it was specifically labeled LAM-ELISA, LAM-ELISA, again, of all things. Was there a cover-up going on? Some sort of medical testing on the population of Skid Row that Elisa unwittingly found herself caught up in? But then again, however, 
According to the autopsy report, her lungs were allegedly unremarkable. But we do know that there are certain oddities and overlooked instances of the autopsy, the medical report, and even the criminalist report. The rape kit was never tested, as far as we know. Any evidence underneath her fingernails was also never released. Who is to say what her tox reports could have shown if she had been found sooner in the way of possible drug intoxication? Because again, as far as we know, there somehow wasn't enough blood to sample to fully complete her workup. And then, of course, there's the elevator game. According to sites at Penn State University, the history of the elevator game is simple enough. It is said to have originated in either Japan or Korea, and in essence, quote, the elevator game is a ritual that is said to give the player access to another world. When the video of Elisa's strange behavior was uploaded to the Chinese version of YouTube called Yuku, people began speculating that was Lisa playing some version of the elevator game with her strange pressing of buttons, the seemingly nonsensical manner that she acted in, hiding in quarters and against the walls. Was this the elevator game in live action? In a thought catalog post that will live in infamy, we do have the rules and instructions for how to play the elevator game. Called The Elevator to Another World, writer Daniel Hayes lays it out for us. And I'll read it to you here to see what you think. The Elevator to Another World. Only one person can play at a time. You can only perform this ritual in a building at least 10 stories high with at least one elevator in it. You cannot proceed otherwise. Traveling Instructions. 1. Enter the elevator from the first floor by yourself. If anyone else gets on, then understand that you cannot continue from the first floor and wait until the elevator can be taken alone. 2. Press the button for the fourth floor. 3. Do not get out when the elevator reaches the fourth floor. Stay in the elevator and press the button for the second floor. 4. Do not get out when you reach the second floor. Stay on the elevator and then press the button for the sixth floor. Five, do not get out when you reach the sixth floor. Remain in the elevator and press the button for the second floor. Six, do not get out when you reach the second floor. Stay on the elevator and press the button for the tenth floor. Some have reported hearing a voice calling to them on the second floor during this middle section of the ritual. Do not reply. Do not answer in any way. Seven, do not get out once you have reached the 10th floor. Stay on and press the button for the fifth floor. Eight, it has been reported by some that a woman may enter the elevator on floor five. She may appear as a stranger who wishes to engage with you. More importantly, she may appear as someone you know. It is important that you do not acknowledge her in word or glance. If the elevator you are in is reflective, then stare at the floor or the buttons only. Nine, now press the button to head to the first floor. If instead of going towards the first floor, you instead begin to ascend to the 10th, then you have performed the ritual correctly. 
However, and this is very important, if you instead do descend to the first floor, then you have done something wrong. Get off on the first floor immediately. If the woman is on the elevator, then remember not to acknowledge her. 10. If you reach the 10th floor, you can either stay on the elevator or exit the elevator. Some have reported that upon attempting to leave the elevator, the woman will try one last time to engage with you. She may raise her voice and ask where you are going or what's wrong. She may shriek as you cross the door's threshold. Keep your wits about you and do not engage or look at her even out of fear. 11. There is only one way to know whether you have traveled to the other world for sure. You will know because you will be the only person there. Instructions for traveling back to your home world. Alternatively, if you do not exit on the 10th floor. 1. Press the button for the first floor and keep pressing it until the elevator begins to move. 2. Once you have reached the first floor, exit immediately. Do not exit on any other floors but the first. Do not acknowledge the woman if she is on the elevator. If anyone else gets on, then do not speak to them either. Remain silent. If you do exit the elevator at the 10th floor, number one, the elevator you use to get there is the only one you can use to return. Remember it. Two, when you get back on the elevator, press the buttons in the same order you did in steps two through eight, which you use to travel. This should take you to the fifth floor. Number three, once you've reached the fifth floor, press the button for the first floor. Do not be surprised when you instead begin to ascend again to the 10th floor. Do not panic. You can press the button of any floor lower than 10 to stop ascending, but you have to do it again before you reach the 10th floor. Some have described feeling called not to cancel the elevator's ascension. You must. Four. Once you have canceled the ascension and reached the first floor, make sure that everything seems normal to you. If anything seems remotely strange, if you hear anything you should not be hearing, if you smell something you don't recognize, then do not exit the elevator. You have to repeat step two until everything on the first floor seems normal. This is very important. Five. Once you are satisfied that everything on the first floor is as it should be in your world, then you can exit the elevator. Additional information on traveling. The other world has been described by travelers as dark, but otherwise exactly like your home world. Again, you will know that it is not your world because no one else will be there. You may see a distinct red cross through a window. This may be a cross or it may be something else. Electronics often do not work, but some have posted videos claimed to have been taken while traveling to the other world. You may become disoriented if you exit on the 10th floor. You may feel dizzy. Be vigilant, pay attention to how you're feeling, and keep your wits about you. If you pass out, you may wake up at home, but understand it may not be your home world. It also may not be the other world you intended to travel to by invoking this ritual. Examine everything around you to make sure it's as it should be. If you get on the wrong elevator on your return trip, then do not enter the return sequence. It will not work. 
regarding the woman. Do not speak to her. Do not look at her. Do not check to see if she is still there. She is. But maybe this wasn't a case of the paranormal, a cover-up, a murder. Maybe this was simply an accident. An accident of indeterminable events. An accident that we'll never fully understand because it's a kaleidoscopic storm made up entirely of chaos theories and butterfly wings. One coincidence of chance that led into another coincidence of chance that led into another and another and another. Maybe Elisa felt comfortable with her hold over her mental illness and decided to stop taking certain parts of her medication treatment plan. Maybe she was frazzled by certain strange men who approached her in LA, and it led to her feeling uncomfortable and a bit paranoid. Maybe her exhibited paranoia set off her hotel roommates and they didn't want to deal with her, and thus ask that management move Elisa. Maybe that further upset Elisa. Maybe she had heard about this elevator game from her Tumblr perusing and decided to play it on her last night in LA. Maybe her lack of inhibitions led her to that rooftop. Maybe someone followed her on that last night. Maybe she was taken advantage of and she was forced up onto that rooftop. Maybe, maybe, maybe. For all our conjecture, that's all we're left with. The idle thoughts of maybe that lead into theories that all stem from questions. And when it comes to the case of Elisa Lamb, there's a lot of questions to be asked even more than we asked in part one of our coverage. Let's start our hashtag questions right from the very top. Why didn't the LAPD search near the water tanks during their first searches for Elisa? Even though the platform that the tanks were on had to be accessed by ladder, there still could have and arguably should have been at least one or two officers sent to examine the area. So why weren't there? Was it simple human laziness, or was it intentionally left unsearched? If the canine units had been taken to tanks during the search, would they have even made a hit? Or had it been too long between when Elisa had last touched anything in the area, and between the time when a discernible hit still would have been able to be picked up, or had they all been washed away during the time frame? Were the canine dogs simply sniffer dogs, or were they cadaver dogs? If they were cadaver dogs, would they have even been able to discern Elisa's presence through the heavy metal tanks? Why were there clear contradictions made in the 2015 deposition against the Hotel Cecil by the Lamb family about the nature of the LAPD searches? To put it plainly, why did the LAPD claim that they made, quote, extensive and exhaustive searches at the Cecil, when in reality, they didn't even have legal probable cause to search more than the few common areas of the hotel? What evidence was lost to the water as Elisa lay submerged in the tank for three weeks? Would DNA prints have been possible to lift from the ladders or fire escapes at that point? Were DNA prints even taken from the theorized ways that Elisa could have gotten onto the rooftop? Was the rooftop door access alarm working at the time of her disappearance? Who exactly saw Elisa on her last day at the Cecil? 
What time was Elisa inside the elevator and why has that never been released to the public? Or maybe more to the question, why the hell would it need to be kept secret? Has there been editing done to the video? And if so, what was removed from the video before it was released? Why didn't Elisa check out on the seat out of the Cecil on the 31st if she was still alive? Did anyone from the Cecil even realize that she was still in the hotel? When was the first complaint made about the water quality and water pressure? And why did it take the Cecil until February 19th to check the water tanks if guests had been complaining for at least a few days beforehand like it has been suggested? For finality's sake, was the hatch to the tank that Elisa was found in open or was it closed when Santiago Lopez discovered her body? Is there any connection between Elisa's death and the fact that Santiago Lopez allegedly disappeared to within the streets of Mexico and has never been able to be contacted since? If the tank was only about half or three quarters full like Lopez testified, then how far down was the water from the opening? Was it possible for Elisa to close the lid behind her while she was in the water? More specifically, what is the length of the drop between the opening of the hatch and where one might expect to hit the water? Why did the medical examiner claim that the cause of death was drowning two days after Elisa was discovered, but then take almost four months to release the full autopsy results that should have only taken six to eight weeks? Why wasn't there enough blood to sample for a full toxicological workup? Though it shouldn't have, it needs to be asked. Was the fact that Elisa remained in the water for so long somehow a contributing factor to her strange autopsy and tox reports? Why in the world, though, would someone need to relabel the manner of death after it had been selected? How do you go from an accidental drowning to undetermined manner of death and then back to accidental drowning? Were the rape, DNA, and fingernail evidence kits ever processed? If they were, why haven't the results been released? And if they weren't, why not? What was the, quote, sand-like particulate found on Elisa's clothes? Why was Elisa naked and her clothes found floating in the tank with her? Was it a case of paradoxical undressing? Was she trying to save her energy while treading water and decided to take off her clothes to help? Were the clothes even all hers? We know Elisa lost her cell phone in the days before her disappearance and death, and in 2013, it should be easy to track the phone. So why hasn't it ever been recovered? Was the phone lost or was it stolen? Did Elisa's strange behavior towards her roommates have anything to do with the odd behavior seen in the elevator video? What was Elisa doing in the video? Was she hiding from someone playing a game or was she going through a mental health episode? Did Elisa purposely stop taking parts of her prescription treatment plan or did she just happen to forget in the hubbub of her travel? Why did Elisa really decide to take her West Coast tour in the first place? The autopsy report never made this clear, so I have this final, well, one of the final questions, which might answer a number of questions all at once. Was Elisa Lamb already dead when she hit the water within the roof tank? Or did she die within the cistern itself? The almost 
tragically ironic thing about Elisa's life and death being such a well-known, oh yeah, that one kind of case is that she was actually never fully comfortable writing with her own name on her blog. She shared a piece by author Kate Harding on her own blog spot in 2012 about the dangers that women face sharing their very names online. And like I said, the irony of that just cuts really, really deep. The name of Elisa Lamb is now so well known, it's become almost an urban legend itself, wrapped inside the ur urban legend of the Cecil where she died. A good chunk of Elisa's story is about danger, mostly the unexpected kind, which is also uniquely tragic. She had dreams of a grand West Coast store, no doubt a trip that she hoped would help lift her from the funk that she'd been lingering under as she learned to cope with and manage her mental health. She wanted to explore new cities, see some jazz without being bothered by strange men, and she'd already picked out books and records for her family members as souvenirs. And then... Over the span of a few days, strangeness and unexplained happenings crept into her story, as well as a sense of danger. Tiny mysteries turned into larger ones that consumed the life and death of Elisa Lamb, turning it into a story about a girl who was a little bit lost, an unsettling video of what may have very well been from the last few hours that she was alive, and a whole host of questions that we might never know the answers to. Steve Erickson, an entertainment critic, wrote a piece for Los Angeles Magazine after spending a night at the hotel himself, not long after Elisa had been discovered floating in the cistern. In it, he reflected on the idea that, quote, the Cecil will reveal to you whatever it is that you're a fugitive from. There's a lot we still don't know about Elisa Lamb or her West Coast tour that ended so tragically, like even the reason for embarking on it. Was she fleeing her past, or was she sprinting towards her future? It's just one more question to add to the pile that has grown around the mysterious death and life of Elisa Lamb. Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you're liking what you're hearing, please go leave a five-star review and rating for the show over on Apple Podcast. I'll be here next week with another hashtag question loaded story to tell you. Before I sign off, I want to give a shout out to the newest members of the DAW Patreon crew, Savannah Barron-Clark, Alexa Ross, and Tori Burke. Welcome to the good ship DAW and long may she reign thanks to your support. If you're interested in joining the DAW Patreon crew, you can head on over to patreon.com slash dark as hell podcast to see what level might be up your alley of interest. There's a new Patreon level and it only costs $1. You can support Da and the work I do here for just $1 a month and get yourself shouted out in an episode and have access to exclusive content on the Patreon. This month's calendar of exclusive Patreon content for all of the different levels is extra amounts of dark as hell. I don't want to spoil anything, but if you're looking to fill your October with extra Da and extra spook, head on over to patreon.com slash dark as hell podcast to check it all out. While you're waiting for next week's episode to drop, you can find Dark as Hell on Instagram at Dark as Hell Podcast, all one word, over on Twitter at Dark as Hell Pod, again, that's all one word, and at the new Dark as Hell website, darkashellpodcast.com. If you want to get in touch with me, 
You can email your comments or hashtag questions of your own over to me at darkasshellpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening. I'll catch you back here next week, ready to get dark as hell all over again.